0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthew.3cr.org.au. 3CR and Stick Together would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners, caretakers and custodians of the land that we are broadcasting from in Fitzroy in Melbourne. And I would also like to acknowledge the Yugambeh people uh, that I am broadcasting from today as well. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Thanks everyone for joining me. Um, I'm your host James Brennan and we've got another episode of Stick Together and we've got a pretty um, bit of a different episode I guess today. This week I'm playing a couple of uh, excerpts from a fundraiser that we organised a few weeks ago, um, raising funds for 3CR uh, for Stick Together show and also for another show that I'm involved in called Uprise Radio. The event took place at Black Spark in Northcote and was talking about climate and capitalism, I guess building an anti-capitalist movement and what that might look like in the current political context. This program, as always, is produced in Melbourne for 3CR and the Community Radio Network with support of the Community Radio Foundation. There are a couple of references to... Colin Long and Robbie Thorpe who spoke before the guests we're going to hear today uh, so i just make mention of those that, uh, that they were mentioned throughout and I want to thank them for their uh, words and participation in the event and I look to get some of their words on the show very soon as well and just um, I could also thank uh, the artists that performed on the day as well Les Thomas Maxine Fink and the Sooty Owls that were all fantastic and also to uh, Black Spark for the use of uh, their fantastic space. To everyone else that was involved in putting on the show, uh, it was fantastic to be able to have uh, an event like that, uh, raising money for 3CR, uh, but also just to have the kind of discussions that were able to be facilitated and and hopefully uh, plays a small part in the kind of movement building that is happening at the moment around climate action. So uh, the guest that we're going to hear from today is Zelda Grimshaw, uh, who's speaking first from Blockade Australia? And they are speaking uh, about their direct involvement in the Blockade Australia campaigning and some of the, particularly some of the actions that have happened over the last little while. Uh, those actions, um, which I'm sure a lot of listeners would have heard, have been meet, met by some uh, pretty intense police uh, repression and also uh, some you know, I guess that was, and that was really backed up by the media as well. Nothing new there, but it's interesting to hear and, and to uh, witness the kind of new tactics that both the mainstream media and the state are using to crush, um, potentially try to crush um, campaigns and social movements. And then we're hearing also from Anthony Kelly um, from Melbourne Activist Legal Centre and about uh, some of the tactics that the that Mel's uses and um, the international um, inspiration that uh, their um, campaigning tactics and things come from. It's been a really great um, addition to protests to be able to have that um, activist legal support and it's really great to hear from both Zelda and Anthony about how their work um, is interacting with the campaigning and helping to build those movements
1: talk about the experience of blockade australia um, and the repression that we as part of the blockade australia network experienced in sydney recently i'm sure you all saw it on the news it was insane um in fact it was i, I did some of the media and it was it was fun to see the media quoting me calling the police insane over and over again in the clips. insane police did the rounds so that was satisfying Um, But it was a really horrible experience. So, um, you know, they were certainly persecuting us. There's no bones about it. It was a concerted persecution um, that revealed just how far so-called Australia is prepared to go to protect its extractivism. You know, 250 police were tasked with... Finding us, following us, arresting us, um, monitoring us, surveilling us. I mean, they helicopter buzzed our press conference. They arrested people at bus stops and charged them with obstructing the Sydney Sydney Harbour Bridge when what they'd actually done was participated in a public march on a street. Arrested someone and charged them with um, conspiracy to commit a crime and then held them in jail for more than three weeks because they'd used a whiteboard. Arrested somebody else in their car for having um, pens in their car as a graffiti media implement and charge them with possession of a graffiti implement um we felt hunted I was in the media space so I was not with most of the people but every time I stepped out of them even in the media space it was like our bodies were on high alert all the time what was that car what were those footsteps coming up are, are they listening are they watching and we We went around Sydney, like, you know, because of facial recognition and because people were getting picked up at bus stops and train stations. Um, So that experience of repression, um, it's not surprising, but it's still shocking in the way that, and even if you're used to your partner hitting you, it still shocks you when they do it. (laughs) It was shocking in that kind of way, that, yeah, it's predictable that Australia will heavily repress any individual or group of people who they think pose an actual challenge to the exploitative and destructive practices that they carry out um but it was still deeply deeply shocking and i think it gave all of us in blockade australia just a little window into the type of persecution that that many people of color experience in other parts of the world and it it And it gave us just a little fraction of the experience that First Nations people must have had in this country since 1788. And it's horrible. I mean, it's just horrible. So I feel like for all of us, and I think I can speak collectively here about Blockade Australia, it's really deepened our empathy for other people who um, have suffered persecution and repression. Um, And I think the backfire effect on the... On the police and on the state of Australia is is going to be powerful. And I think we've already seen it starting to happen. It has galvanised a type of solidarity that Blockade Australia hasn't experienced before now. Um, so that's really fantastic to see and may that continue. So I'm going to move into the inclusive we now. So I'm going to speak about us here in this room. I don't think I need to tell anyone in here that the wrong Amazon is burning. For a while, um, I mean, climate and climate destruction and capitalism, colonisation, they're all, they're the same beasts. Um, for a while, people were calling the sort of system of interlocking oppressions that exists uh, the um, which was kind of handy as a term, but it didn't really take off. So I usually refer to it as the um, climate-wrecking capitalist, patriarchal, colonial, extractivist, um, misogynist, military-industrial death machine... Um. (laughs) But it's quite long, so for shorthand I'm just going to talk about it as the death machine. What I want to talk about today is not the death machine and the way it works or why it needs to be opposed, because I feel like we're already in that movement. What I want to talk about is the movement, and I think it is one big movement, so that's how I see it. We're all in one big movement against the death machine, and whether you are a mental health worker who tries to help sane people cope with an insane world or whether you're someone who tries to prevent patriarchal violence, or whether you're someone who's out there blockading bulldozers. For me, you're part of the movement that's against the death machine. So uh, the NGOs, I'm not quite sure if they're allies in the movement or if they're kind of disabling um, apologists. Just a little bit undecided about that. So when I talk about the movement, I'm actually really talking about the grassroots movement, which is, a, I think is who is in this room. I do work for an organisation, but um, it's not even an entity actually it has no legal status and when I think about the future on the one hand I'm absolutely terrified I mean climate collapse is here somewhere into it's here it's coming and we are going to need each other in one of my recent Blockade Australia posts, I wrote, Solidarity is the currency of the future. And I really believe that. I really think we are going to need each other and the solidarity that we build now and the networks that we can build now are what is going to enable us to survive the climate apocalypse and is going to enable us and already enable to rebuild, build the shell of the new within the old, which is some of the things that Colin um, has has spoken about, some of the immediate practical steps that can be taken Um, certainly in the union movement and for all of us. I find solidarity often lacking in the left. Um, There's a toxic culture that permeates the left and I think that that toxic culture is part of our capitalist framework where we vie for supremacy in a competitive way, like my ideas, my ideology is better than yours... And I'm going to exclude you because you are not completely on point so everybody hates everybody you know like the socialists hate the other socialists the anarchists hate the other anarchists um, everybody hates the NGOs and maybe that's reasonable I don't know not making an assessment there I mean, I've heard people talk about Extinction Rebellion as middle-class people performing their grief. And it's like, well, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's all that XR does. But even if it were true, I'd rather they were out there doing that than shopping, you know? And people talk about school strike for climate as young people who've been co-opted by an NGO and who are now therefore worthy of contempt. And even if they have been co-opted by an NGO, and even if that's true, baby doesn't have to be quiet. It's okay. Um, even if that were true, I'd still rather those young people were turning up to the prime minister's house and yelling at him than at home playing Xbox. So, and when I look at the youth and blockade Australia is is driven by youth. Like there are a lot of people of my generation and and much older than me involved. Um, but the core strategists are young people, um, and you see this in the Black Lives Matter movement in the states, and we're seeing it in other countries as well. That there are. There's a cohort of young people who are behaving in ways that more, um, that older generations or more, um, I guess, moderate um, activists see as beyond the pale. Um, they're cursing, they're yelling at the police. Um, they're maybe doing doing acts of sabotage, or you know, in some way they're using tactics that older generations or, or mainstream generation mainstream activists don't approve of. So I want to really ask you, um, all of you who are mostly my generation in here, um, and and. With empathy for the young people in here, to look at the humanity of our young people. I mean, these are people who are terrified. They have got a lot of skin in this game, you know, so they are, and they are furious, and rightly so, and they are grieving for the future that they won't have. So when we see those young people out there yelling at the police in a way that we don't think is maybe very comfortable for us, I want you to really exercise your compassion and see their humanity and lift that humanity up high. As Blockade Australia... (laughs) Thank you. As Blockade Australia, um, I'm just speaking inclusive, exclusively now again. As Blockade Australia, we've copped a lot of criticism from others on the left about you know tactics that weren't the best possible tactics. <laughs> so I want to say. If you feel those things, please come and speak with us. Please don't put those criticisms online where they shame us and where they divide us. Please come and speak with us. So we're holding a series of info talks on August the 6th. They're all over the place. There'll be one in here in Naam. Um, I think there's one in Ballarat as well. There's a whole lot of them going on, about a dozen. Please come to one and engage with us. And if you've got better tactics, please bring them because we'd love to hear them. Before you tell us why our tactics are wrong, Maybe ask us why we're using those tactics. Maybe come with a question rather than a criticism as you first approach. And I think that that's something that can be applied across the left and across activism in general. Before we go slamming and shaming each other, maybe we can come with curiosity, oh, why did you think that tactic was a good idea? And if you really do want to criticise, please do it offline. Um, <laughs> the first time I heard um, a grown-up speak about anarchism, I was about the age of these young people here, um, and I asked those grown-ups, what is this anarchism that you're into? And they said, um, anarchism is a world where the economy is based on love. So as a grown-up now, myself, with grown-up children, I, I still believe that, I still feel that. And I'm not talking about a hippie, kind of hedonist, let's-have-an-orgy love, although, um, you know, that sounds like a good idea too. Um, <laughs> I am talking about love as solidarity and solidarity as connection, not as something transactional. I give you five solidarity and you give me back five solidarity. I solidarity with you because you and I are fundamentally the same. We are the same. We're of the same earth. So when Christianity and Islam both sort of swooshed through the world and destroyed the earth religions, which they did as part of often colonising states coming in um, they're trying to erase indigenous cultures along with the earth religions and what's fantastic um, about hearing from people like um, Robbie today who I don't call uncle because Robbie's my generation <laughs> Um is that they failed to do that. The earth religions survive. Indigenous knowledges survive. And they teach us that we are not separate from earth. We are not separate from other species. And we are not separate from each other. And it is that connectedness that is the basis of solidarity. I'm with you because you are me. I am you. We are part of this same big struggle against the death machine. And that idea that none of us are free while one of us is chained. So another phrase that inspires me... um, and this came out of um, uh, Valerie Kaur, who's um, written a book called See No Stranger, is that revolutionary love is the call of our times. When you think about revolutionary love or when you think about solidarity, I want us to try and think about it as more than something transactional and about something that actually enters the spiritual realm. And I know that's really weird for us because we're mostly people who don't ever go there, but I think we actually do. And I think it's in any connection that uplifts you when you are in nature. So when you're out in nature and you see a magnificent tree... There is something thrilling about it when you see a waterfall and you feel the spirit of that water. That is the old earth religion that is in you, that is in your body, it is in your ancestral memories. And that is the connection that I think forms the solidarity that can get us through. You also see it in the communal spirit, I call, which happens when you're in blockade camps. So I've been to all three Blockade Australia mobilisations and each time I experienced this communal spirit, I experienced it at the... Disrupt Land Forces Festival of Resistance that was on in Mianjin last year where just being in the space uplifts you everyone's kind of like buzzing and it's this community of people where the love is really really free it is a community of people who are already doing whatever they can to share what they've got and to support each other so I think about that as something that is a spiritual uplift and that is solidarity and then you also see in a more prosaic level the mutual aid that spontaneously springs up when there's a natural disaster. After the huge floods we've had recently and after those terrible fires, there was this upswelling of mutual aid by ordinary people, not activists, not leftists, no ideology perhaps in their brains, no idea that what they were doing has been theorised as mutual aid, but there they were doing everything they could to protect and support each other, even risking their lives to go out on boats and to go into fires to save others, that is what we are made of as humans. We are not what the capitalist world teaches us that we are. We are not dog-eat-dog machines. We are people who are deeply connected with each other and with our earth. I'm nearly done. So (laughs) I think with that idea of communal spirit, what gives me hope for the future is that I sense that the world we need is already here in our hearts. It is in our bodies. It is in our ancestral memories. And I'll finish with a quote from John Lennon, a paraphrase of John Lennon. Sorry, baby. Revolutionary love is all we need. Thanks so much, Zelda. Good things happening, good things to come, and it is really, uh, really important what you say about solidarity and lifting each other up because we've got a big fight ahead of us, um, and we already have a strong movement, and let's just make it stronger. Um, I would like to welcome Anthony. Um, Anthony Kelly is a trainer and educator with MELs, and just uh, and maybe to speak a little bit about what the work that MELs does, um, and you know, I think it's a in. Uh, a good relationship with obviously what blockade Australia has gone through over the, the last uh, few months. Oh, okay. So oh, thanks okay. for joining us.
2: Thanks Mercedes. Uh, my microphone's very high, I hope that's okay. <laughs> uh, I was going to joke by saying I'm not going to talk about climate and capitalism, I'm going to lighten the mood by just talking about political repression, but, but <laughs> Zelda's also. <laughs> um, it's going to lead on nicely from Zel- Zelda's talk just then. Uh, I'm assuming there's some sort of acknowledgement at the start of this panel. I would like to add to that just by couching. Whenever we talk about political repression and policing and the criminal justice system, we need to recognise that it's on the basis of over two, gener- uh, two centuries of genocidal violence experienced and survived by First Peoples throughout the country and that all of the systems we're talking about, policing and the, the prison system, the criminal justice system, has been a core component of the colonial project in the country Um, and remains that way, remains a uh, a core component of suppression. So, I've just come from an activist legal support, uh, a legal observer training over in Brunswick, so there's going to be 25 more legal observers uh, out on the streets before too long. Um, which is really good. So, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the origins of that and our role in pushing back against um, legal political repression uh, and the strategic elements of that. Uh, a large part of my activist sort of career over the last 30 years or so has been involvement in a a global solidarity movement called Peace Brigades International, or PBI. Uh, I worked with them over many years in different components. Um, PBI has been around for over 40 years. It's, it is, was established in the 19, uh, late '70s, early '80s through the work of Latin, sol- Latin solidarity, um, Latin American solidarity activists and anti-colonial activists in the global South coming together, uh, and forming an international solidarity in peace and human rights. Um, force or brigade. And PBI's primary modus operandi that's been developed very early on uh, in the early 80s was to uh, field teams of international volunteers, often for very long times, over well over a decade, in areas of intense political repression. We've worked in Colombia, Guatemala, uh, El Salvador, Honduras, um, in... In um, Aceh, in West Papua, in, in Indonesia, in Sri Lanka, uh, in several other countries as well. The primary work of PBI is to provide what's called protective accompaniment, specifically with activists, local activists who are facing severe threats because of the work that they do. They're organised. They might be Indigenous land defenders, women's activists, they might be uh, Indigenous leaders, um, lawyers taking human rights cases, organisers, unionists, a uh, whole variety of activists, all of who face either the risk of uh, assassination, death or disappearance or torture because of their work and the context in which they work. Uh, And PBI provides sometimes 24 hour uh, accompaniment to those activists Uh, going to meetings with them, going out to regions, traveling in vehicles with them through checkpoints, um, going to court, um, turning up to meetings or rallies or protests where they are, where they're speaking and providing uh, incredibly close quarter accompaniment with them so that it raise the cost of the state carrying out their threat of assassination or disappearance. But having an international volunteer with these activists means that it's, uh, it's less likely that the state will carry out their threat because it increases the cost of that having an international volunteer and the, and, and the PBI volunteers act as the Literally the eyes and ears of the international community and backed up by a global solidarity network and and the diplomatic network. So it's it's quite a sophisticated protective human rights protection strategy. Uh, One of the reasons I'm mentioning it is because over 40 years, uh, no volunteer, no PBI volunteer, has been killed doing this sort of work. Uh, And also, no um, activist that we've worked with has been killed or disappeared while under PBI's protective accompaniment. And that's That's extraordinary for a whole number of reasons. One of which it demonstrates how um, activists in facing these sort of conditions under extreme risk where their families might receive threats, where their colleagues and other friends have been killed or disappeared, um, where they've withstanding sometimes decades of US-sponsored state terror, um, those movements and those groups and those activists have been able to continue using an array of strategies and tactics, including using international solidarity mechanisms and using tools such as PBIs, protective accompaniment. Um, And they've been able to continue their work. They've been able to to maintain um, their groups and their organisations and continue. The other reason I mention it is because a lot of this the ideas, the tactics, the approaches, the organising philosophies, the practice principles—we've applied in various ways to Melbourne activists' legal support. We use those sort of same sort of techniques when we're here in Melbourne doing and, at protests and um, seeing human rights abuses and seeing um, um, seeing problems with policing and um, with public order policing right here. We're using some of those same chain of command advocacy techniques, using a support network to back up our presence on the streets. Uh, using our direct presence as a deterrence, but also to enforce uh, and assert our our human rights concerns right throughout the chain of command and therefore expose it and and, uh, reinforce and reinvigorate uh, existing accountabilities and human rights protections processes, which by themselves are are not effective. Um, And that's the idea that uh, movements that can anticipate, work with, withstand repression and and can then use the repression to make the movement stronger. Um, The uh, the irony about this, and the most important thing to realise about this, is that all those elements, all the things that do that, the movements that do that, uh, that put in place the things that allow us to withstand repression are also elements that make a movement more likely to be successful. Movements that are able to reach out broadly to other civil society sections, to other movements, to churches and unions and civil society groups and draw in support Um, and build support for its own, for that, uh, for its cause or its political objectives. Uh, Movements that can support and train and build leadership throughout the organisation, so that have multiple layers and um, support for leaders as they move up through the movements. So that when 20 or 30 leaders are picked off or have restrictive bar conditions, suddenly there's another 20 or 30 or 40 leaders to continue the organising and and organise the next set of actions. Um, movements that can train and support new people coming into the movement, that can provide that sort of um, uh, resourcing and support to allow people to step up gradually uh, in their courage and conviction, and can also help people overcome fear. And movements that can help their members um, respond to and overcome fear are generally really strong. Uh, And that can be a whole range of things, but that expression of uh, training and support is a really key element of that, of overcoming fear, to allow people to practice their responses to to police, to arrest, to to imprisonment, to all these sorts of things in a safe environment beforehand, and practice it, work through it, all those sorts of things, uh, are far more likely to withstand that sort of level of police repression when it actually happens on the streets and not get shocked by it. but also move, movements and groups that can really hold together and support each other and have strong support debriefing systems and are aware of those emotional emotional responses that anxiety the fear that comes by facing police and, and political repression Um, There's probably lots of other ideas, I'm not going to talk through more, but that's that's that idea that movements can um, mobilise and grow stronger um, through being able to withstand political repression. And um, I was in awe, and I think we all should be, (coughs) of the activists, many of whom were, um, you know, some of whom are quite old friends of mine. Um, up in Sydney who were dealing with both the the operational security needs of trying to, knowing that all of their communications were being monitored by police um, at any point they could be picked off and and arrested but also trying to mobilise numbers uh, for a really assertive um, staunch and courageous um, actions in the middle of the CBD against that and really um, vitriolic um, public condemnation and and at all levels of government, all the, from the police minister and the, um, the premier and the chief of com- um, police, all targeting them and demonising them. And then able to both assertively call for solidarity from a wide variety of civil society groups and continue to mobilise um, You know, this week with um, public gatherings and, and call-outs and ways of getting involved in the movement. So all of us should be really... Um, both in awe of and learning from the responses of Blockade Australia to that sort of policing over the last couple of weeks. So, yeah.
0: Thanks, Anthony, and thanks to all the speakers. And that's it for Stick Together this week. If you want to catch up on our program, the podcast is available at 3cr.org.au or wherever you normally listen to a podcast. And you can contact the producers out of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com. My name's James Brennan. And remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. Until next time, stick together.
1: The
2: bug spray, would ya? I'm getting sick of being Can <laughs> I?